0: Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22nd, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Radio where each week we talk to a musician, artist, author, or other creative Mississippian working in the arts across the state. I'm your host, Melody Moody-Thordis, Director of Grants at the Mississippi Arts Commission, and today I'm speaking with dancer Candace Salyers. Candace, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I want to talk to you a little bit about... Um, you know, growing up and, and how you came to, to the existence that you are now as a dancer. <laughs> but, but tell our audience, before we dive deep, a little bit about um, yourself, what you're currently doing.
1: Yes. Well, I am a dance artist, and I think about that very broadly, um, that my, my work, my artistic work, always includes dance. It always includes movement in some way or a movement exploration that helps me understand something more about humanity or about myself or about the world. Um, And specifically, my work right now is really looking at how can dance practices be used to bring or help to bring more dignity to human life, um, and and how can they be a means of humanitarian service. So a lot of the work that I do as an artist now is focused on... um, helping other people dance when they haven't maybe had the opportunities to do so, um, because certainly participation and expression through the arts is one way that human beings experience dignity and experience and empowerment, Um, as well as using my own performing to highlight issues or ideas or understandings about our world. And specifically for me right now, that's that's been very environmentally focused and considering the relationship between human beings and landscapes, as well as the relationships between different groups of human beings and how dance can actually be a means of peacemaking between people and between humans and our, our natural environments.
0: Well, I want to I really um, dig into all of that. Let me ask you let me start at the beginning. Um, so where did you grow up?
1: I actually grew up in a small town. It used to be a small town. <laughs> it's <laughs> not anymore. Um, right outside of Nashville, Tennessee. And um, it's a place, it, it's called Hendersonville, and it's a place where a mm-hmm. lot of... um <laughs> Yeah. Actually, yes. Johnny Cash <laughs> was a member of my church. I was going to oh, say, <laughs> <That's right>. yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, you know, watching him perform in church was one of my early formative memories, actually, because at the time, I didn't understand that he was world famous as a performer. Um, I just thought he was well known in the congregation. But but <laughs> he had a particular way of performing. And I think you'll hear you know, members of his family speak about this, too, that, that there was something transmitted through him when he was in a state of performance that was very profound mm-hmm. and very sacred. And so I do actually count him as one of my early influences as a performer, that it, it Seeing him perform in that way and feeling that kind of transmission from a performer Mm
0: -hmm.
1: really shaped what I thought was possible through performance.
0: Um I actually grew up um just a stone's throw away from the carter fold um and and he would perform there sometimes, and Marty Stewart would perform there and of course you know uh with June carter's family um, yes and, and the and the carter family so um i I can relate to the to the other side of that as well um that's that's amazing that's part of why I knew about the Hendersonville connection um growing up in kind of that area as well. So tell me about your early creative experiences.
1: Well, I my mother put me into ballet classes as a child, and um, I'm very grateful to her for doing that, and I'm very grateful that I had the opportunity to do that. And as a young child, I didn't enjoy it very much. I um, <laughs> I, I, I kind of didn't like to be told what to do, um, and so I was always. Uh, not not that I was always fidgeting at the bar or in the ballet bar or something, but I was always engaged in movement beyond what was being asked of me. So um, as I grew up, I, I started to understand, well, there are many ways that we can be dancers in the world. And I've had the great benefit also of then studying other world dance traditions where um, Spontaneous dance, what we might call improvisational dance here, can have many functions in a culture and in a community. So even though I, I I wasn't necessarily the best student as a four-year-old in my ballet class, I feel like those early opportunities did give me a chance to develop um, a kinesthetic language and understanding that, that then I could apply in other ways. Um, but I also, I would say, one of the things that really shaped... Um, me as an artist was, was hearing a story in church actually about, um, there was a, there was an offering plate being passed through the congregation and it came to a woman who didn't have any money to put in it. And so she placed the offering plate on the floor and stood inside of it and said that she would be the offering. And it was like, at that moment, I knew what my role was in the world. I felt like, oh, that's, that's what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be an offering. And so I think I was searching for a long time for how, as an artist, can I become that offering, which certainly as a woman has a lot of complexity to it, but um, in our culture, but thinking about and reminding myself continuously that, that being given this gift of dance, um, it's also given through me for other purposes, that, that I want to continually remind myself that my work is, is to be an offering.
0: So you were put in ballet classes fairly young. So do you feel like it's a, it's an art form? I mean, obviously you've chosen it. You articulated very well your experience with it and why you chose it. But but was it chosen for you in the beginning, or was it something you felt yourself drawn to even at such a young age?
1: <laughs> well, I loved to dance at a young age, um, even m- much younger than four. I I remember I would. Um, steal slash borrow my older sister's leotard. And I would um, go into our kitchen and, and put on a, put on music and just spin around for forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting now that one of the world dance traditions I practice it involves that kind of spinning. Um, but I feel like as a child, I understood that that dance has really sacred properties to it. And, and that part of dance I feel like chose me and I chose it very naturally. I had to learn how to be with dance and be in dance in more codified structures. Um, but as I said, th- those those techniques have definitely benefited me um, and helped me develop greater understanding of movement and of how dance can function in the world.
0: So, so you grew up in Hendersonville. Where do you... Kind of make make where where's uh, where do you go to undergrad?
1: I went to the University of Memphis. Okay, okay.
0: I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm 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 discovering what's getting you inching you closer to Mississippi. Um. <laughs> well, actually,
1: it's, there's been a big detour, so we'll we'll talk.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, tell me about it. Tell me about uh, Memphis. Tell me about the detour.
1: Well, I did not go to college to be a dancer. I actually was very sure that I would be a doctor. That's what I had wanted to be my whole life, in addition to an offering. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, on a philosophical level, I wanted to be an offering. On a really practical level, I wanted to be a doctor. So I was I entered school pre-med um, and actually in uh, as a math major. And at the same time, I was really involved in the dance program there. And And there are wonderful people in the dance program at the University of Memphis who are still there 20 years later. Um, but this, at the time that I was there, Moira Logan and Holly Lau were really directing that uh, department and they welcomed me in, whether I was a major or not, and helped me helped me get a broader understanding of dance and the way that it can engage in the world and, and especially the way that it can engage in the community. Um, at the time, Holly had really started to develop um, not just dance as a way of knowing, but dance as, as a means of helping many, many different people um, learn more about themselves and engage with each other across differences. So I was very captivated by that work. And I, I still did not graduate as a dance major. I, I um, ended up getting an interdisciplinary degree where I was looking at how do music and dance and visual art um, maintain the real rigor that they have as professional artistic practices and studio practices, and at the same time, have relevance for the world outside the studio and for people who are not professional artists. I've, I've always been really interested in both of those things, that there can be excellence in the practice and also that it can be accessible and available for many, many people, not only for the professional artists.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so did you end up you said a detour, so, <laughs> so so did you end up, you know, pursuing a, a path as a doctor? Or, or tell me more about this, this detours? No,
1: I. it's so interesting. I ended up, um, because I had not focused solely on dance as an undergraduate, I ended up going to graduate school for dance, um, and I went mm. to Massachusetts. I, I moved to Massachusetts, and then... Um, after I graduated from graduate school, I moved actually to Wisconsin. I, there was a woman, um, a choreographer there, who was also a really brilliant solo artist and performer. And I was captivated by her work as a soloist, so I went and auditioned for her company so that I could be close to her and sort of study how she, how she did things as a performer. Because sort of like Johnny Cash, she was one of those really magical human beings when she was on stage, and you could feel the transmission Of whatever she was bringing through to the audience on a much deeper level than um, we might intend to put into choreography. So I moved to Madison, Wisconsin and I danced with her for a while and then I actually ended up taking a teaching job in New Hampshire so I moved back to New England Um, and I I stayed in New England for quite a while for about 12-13 years and lived in Massachusetts most of that time. Started developing a lot of site work in New England, all over New England, Vermont, and Massachusetts and Maine. And then I moved to Los Angeles, and <laughs> which was a, a major detour. Um, and I was actually thinking about that earlier today, that um, having grown up in the South, I. I always actually loved to return to the South, and I felt like there was something more for me to do here. I just wasn't sure what it was. So when I was living in Los Angeles, um, I actually ended up, I had left a teaching job at a university in Massachusetts and moved to Los Angeles, and I was writing a book, and I was loving Los Angeles. California is such an amazing place. Um, But I... I started to miss teaching as well. So I was looking for teaching jobs and I, and I began interviewing at universities in the South and I, it started to feel like the door was opening for me to come back to the South. Um, and I was really thrilled. I actually, I don't, can we talk about faith on this? Yeah, sure. Okay. (laughs) So I actually, I, I was interviewing a lot of different places, not only in the South, but also, um, in California and Pennsylvania and many Massachusetts, many different places. And I finally got to the place where I was so exhausted with all of those um, applications and all of the interview processes that I just said, okay, I surrender. Like i said this prayer of just send me where I can be of service. And the very next day I got contacted by the University of Southern Mississippi wow. to, to come interview. So it felt really interesting and exciting and a new pathway that was opening up for me but at the same time when i told artists in california that i was going to interview in mississippi i had this heartbreaking experience where one of them said oh don't go there you don't want to go there you don't want to be in the south and of course because um, (laughs) for some reason i've always had this accent my southern accent hasn't ever been very pronounced even as a child um, so a lot of times I am privy to people saying disparaging things about the South because they don't realize that I'm from the South. Mm-hmm. So it just was very heartbreaking to me, not, not just for, you know, thinking about, um, how that reflects on the South, but, but thinking about, um, this, this other artist in California just doesn't know the, the only thing that she perceives are problems in the South and certainly, like everywhere else in the United States and everywhere else in the world, there are a lot of difficulties. I mean, we have a lot of work to do as human beings all over the world. Um, But I was really excited actually to come back to the South and to start doing more work, more artwork that's invested in this place.
0: I'm Melody Moody-Thortis, and you're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast. You can also hear the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. To hear all our conversations with creative Mississippians, be sure to subscribe to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast on your favorite podcasting app. contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, "Eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Radio. Each week on the Arts Hour, representatives from the Mississippi Arts Commission speak with different creative Mississippians. Today I'm speaking with dancer and creative... Candice Salyers. So Candace, when we last left um, you had made your way to taking a job at the University of Southern Mississippi. For, for people who don't know tell our listeners a little bit about the dance department there.
1: Uh, well the dance program is a really beautiful rigorous BFA a Bachelor of Fine Arts in um, both choreography and performance or in dance education. So all of our students get a lot of training in um, creating dances, in performing dances, and also all of them get training in how to teach. So um, because that's that's something that I think my colleagues and I have all found, that, that being strong in all of those areas is important for how we engage in the world as dancers. Um, and also, I've had the opportunity to develop a lot of service learning courses um, in the past couple of years there, which means that... That I'm also looking at how can our performing and our choreographic work and our teaching um, make significant partnerships in the community.
0: Um, yeah, that's something that I'm, I'm particularly interested in. So, so why don't we um, use that um, as a way to talk about some of your service learning um, that you've incorporated. I know that you have um, had some of your students work um, with the Leaps of Faith program. Tell us some about that and, and any other kind of community focused work that you've done, particularly as it relates to dance.
1: Yes. So we've been able to have two really great, um, semester long partnerships with Leaps of Faith, two, two different courses. One that is, a, a freshman ballet course, um, in which we, um, went and performed for the little girls who are part of the leaps of faith program. It's a program for, um, young girls where they are offered ballet classes for free. So we went and performed my students performed for them. And then we also helped to sort of tutor them in performance, uh, with a, with a dance that they were learning. And not only was it a great joy and a reinvigoration for us, but I, I saw how those connections, um, between generations have a big impact on what people think is possible for themselves. So it had a big impact on my students and what they think they can do in the world through dance, but also hearing from Laura Catherine Dawson, who's the program director at Leaps of Faith. She created the whole program. Um, Hearing from her about the response of the little girls and and what they now think is possible for themselves that that they they didn't know that they could go to college and study dance and train to do this in the world and so seeing that mutual benefit has been really exciting Um, and then with the advanced ballet class this semester uh, we've been able to partner again it's virtual so we're doing lots of back and forth uh, sending videos and notes and encouraging words um, but my students are working not only to perform or share their their work in classical ballet with the young girls, but also um, they are designing um, a way to teach those girls a classical variation. So, so my, the advanced students have learned a very difficult classical ballet variation that they're then distilling down to its essence and figuring out how to teach that to someone who, who has much less ballet experience than they do. And it's, it's been really beautiful to see um, the ways in which they're thinking about and connecting with and encouraging the young
0: girls. Well, I know I'm jumping around chronologically, but you've done some work um, with Camp Steady and for um, programs for homeless children, and then that led to you um, founding an organization of artists um, working to kind of find the intersection of their art and service. So, tell us a little bit about a bit about more. Excuse me, tell us a little bit more about those experiences.
1: Yes. I mean, I have to say the children who were part of Camp Steady were some of the greatest teachers I've ever had. Um, they, the ways in which they engaged with dance and also the ways in which they respected um, not only the art form, but but anything that I brought into them changed my perspective on how to, um, how to respect dance myself. And, and I, I remember... This was many years ago, so I was using CDs. We were playing music off of CDs, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, dating myself a little bit. But um, so I had brought a CD in, and I and I happened to be passing it around the circle because I just didn't have another object to pass around the circle when we were engaged in this warm-up game. So I was using a CD, and it was a CD that had been in the back of my car. I think I had tossed it back there, you know, just sort of carelessly, and. When I pass it around the circle, the way in which the children handled it and treated it with such care and such respect, it made me realize that there are so many things I take for granted um, or that I, I treat as disposable, like a CD, that someone else has, has the capacity to um, demonstrate a great amount of care and respect for that. So it changed my way of being. And I feel like I will never forget that the way they handled that CD is the way I wanna handle everything, to treat everything as precious and with respect. And, and so I often talk to my students now about, you know, if we're touching another dancer, how are we doing that? Are we doing that with the utmost care and respect? Because pre-COVID, certainly we, we do a lot of lifting or partner work that involves um, having to push against or pull against or lift another another human, and the ways in which we engage with that quality of touch means something. So, um, they those children that can't study changed my perspective completely
0: what to this you, day. What would you say to? Um, I was going to say a young person, but really any person, any artist who wants to get involved with helping their community with um, using their art as a way to move the needle or to express um, their vision or feelings about any, you know, humanitarian effort or community project yeah, I mean,
1: I think first I would invite us all to remember or to connect with what do we think is possible through our art form? Um, because sometimes we might feel a little bit like we have to fight to get our art form recognized or appreciated. And if we weren't fighting, <laughs> um, what what would we use that energy for? And so my my real passion is rerouting that. it's It's not that we have to fight to get what we're doing. Um, appreciated by someone who's not appreciating it we have to see for ourselves what do we believe it can do and then put it into that channel mm-hmm. so um, I have definitely found and I think this is so true of Mississippi I mean I, I, I remember maybe a year after I came to Mississippi one of our community partners at Habitat for Humanity telling me that that Mississippi is actually the highest uh, has, for many years has been the highest ranked in the United States for charitable giving, which seems mm-hmm. That's right. amazing considering that we also in Mississippi face a lot of challenges, especially economic challenges. So I think of it in a similar way that that what can we give um, to our community or to someone through our artwork? Because those those gifts that we've been given as artists are actually useful. I think sometimes... I, I find that artists believe, or oh, they they need to do something outside of their art in order to benefit the community. Instead of recognizing that that those very gifts they have as an artist can absolutely be what they bring to their community, um, and certainly there are other cultures that I've I've had the pleasure to um, work in where dance is understood to be a community service. So, mm-hmm. um, and especially in particular ritual forms where you you know you can't force it or fake it. You're if the dance comes through you, you you've been chosen to be the one that carries that dance into the community. And that's really valued and appreciated as a means of collective healing, but also as a collective responsibility. So I think, you know, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is what is my responsibility and what in what ways am I implicated in things that are done in the name of the United States or done in the name of um, the place where I live. That I also bear responsibility for, um, that might seem out of my control, but I could meet it in some way with uh, with a dance action. So, for example, um, last year I was I was reading an article about a drone strike that it, the United States had done in Afghanistan that you know unintentionally killed 30 farmers. Well, I when I pay my taxes, I often think about how. Um, I'm helping to feed children who need the benefit of a free lunch at school, or um, to preserve our public landscapes, or grow our national forests, or or support the arts. You know, I convince myself that that's what my tax money is being used for, but in truth, it's being used for drones. Also, it's being used for weapons, and so I feel a certain amount of culpability in what the United States does. Um, and what kinds of weapons are developed and used. And so last year I, I, I found myself looking to performance to, to try to help me take some responsibility for that. And I, I created a performance in collaboration with a wonderful visual artist and sculptor, Kevin Venick, who um, he created 30 iron hearts and we placed them in this plaza it sort of accumulated over about an hour and a half that these, he was shaping um, these hearts out of iron. And I was performing a dance, a meditative dance, um, the entire time with the intention that each of those hearts was honoring the life of, of one of those Afghan civilians who was hit by the drone strike, that, that I want to call at least remembrance to that and honor their memory in some way. But I have to say, just like I've been doing this work for so long, I still questioned, can dance really do anything? Or can the arts really do anything in that situation? And what I came to was, yes, because for me, dance is an expression of love. It's, that, it's love that moves me. So there are many people who unfortunately feel moved to hate people that they've never met and for some reason I feel moved to love people I've never met so in the most respectable way I could I, I tried to allow that love to move me for that period of time in remembrance of them just to at least hold space for honoring that they lived and were, um, were part of this world that sometimes we Um, We can forget the very human ways in which mechanized weapons are um, deployed. Mm
0: I'm Melody Moody-Thortis and you're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast. You can also hear the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. To hear all our conversations with creative Mississippians be sure to subscribe to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast on your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Radio. Each week on the Arts Hour, representatives from the Mississippi Arts Commission speak with different creative people living in Mississippi. Today, I'm speaking with dancer and artist Candace Salyers. So, Candace, I want to talk a little bit more about your specific work in dance and your um, passion for site-specific work. So I want to hear about your experience with this, but moreover, I'd like to hear a little bit about, you know, why that is important to you, kind of your philosophy around site-specific work.
1: Great, yeah, that's a, a wonderful question. I, I think that originally, I started making site-specific work about 20 years ago, and the first site work I ever made was actually me inside a dumpster Um, and the audience had to, they could only initially see the very tips of my fingers Um, and I was really exploring these ideas about the way we um, treat things and people as disposable. Um, But for me, I started to realize that there's something, there's something that um, dance in specific settings can bring to an art, uh, to a, uh, an audience's imagination that dance on a stage doesn't always bring in the same way. And I, I will say I certainly regard stages and theaters as specific sites, they are. So when we make a, a dance for a stage or a proscenium setting, that's a, that's a very specific um, <laughs> site and engagement with the audience. And so really all works are site-specific in my experience, but I've been very interested in the ways in which dance can exist in sites where we don't always expect to see it, um, and the ways in which those unexpected um, dances can bring more to our poetic understanding of the human body and the the connection of the human body to the rest of the living and, and constructed world.
0: I know this is sounds off topic, but it really reminds me of the alternative comedy scene um, of the 80s and 90s. And um, I don't know how familiar you are with that, but um, all these comics performing in all these different um, site-specific places that were not the comedy clubs and were not the places mm. that they were typically heard. But instead, um, it, it, it allowed their comedy itself to grow into what they called alternative comedy, because the, when they moved from the specific site, it kind of um, broke the rules, and changed the rules, and allowed that particular art form to expand in new ways, Um, and so I know that's probably a random analogy, but the one that came to mind, um, so tell me about how performing in being being intentional about performing in certain sites how that has opened up the performance um or the the dance medium itself
1: that is so interesting actually i didn't know anything about the comedy scene but i love that i'm gonna look more into that um i think it's similar in a way that well at least for me um i learned so much from dance practices. And I especially learn a lot when I take one dance and install it in many different locations. So I may or may not have made the dance itself there, but I work with that environment to transform the movement so that I'm starting to understand more of of the meaning and meaningfulness in the movement because of what the the site itself is telling me. and in in the ways that the movement and the environment are in dialogue. Um, But I also think uh, I've, I've thought a lot, both internationally and in the United States, about how my presence in various locations has different meanings. And for me, I think, for a very long time, I felt like a stranger everywhere that I was, <laughs> like including everywhere, you know, growing up. I, I, I think I always felt like a little bit of a stranger. And I decided that on the other side of that is friend. So I could either conceive of myself as stranger in each location or I could conceive of myself as friend. Mm-hmm. And how does that affect my intention? Like you were saying, I think intention is a perfect word. How does that change my intention for how I am in that space? So certainly internationally, um, and I think you and I were speaking about this off the air a moment ago about in community partnerships, I want to be the best friend that I can be. And that can look many different ways in different situations and in different sites, but it is almost always about listening first. So, So really hearing, literally from people, from the community, or hearing in a more metaphorical way in a sight of what's there, what's already present, what's needed, what's desired, and where can I be of service there? Where can I be a good friend to that place or to those people?
0: So um, give us um, by way of giving us an example, tell me a little bit more about your experience working in national parks. I think that'll help reflect kind of some of this site-specific work that we're talking about for people listening.
1: Um, When I was working on my PhD, actually, I unexpectedly (laughs) completely changed my dissertation project. I had been researching a lot of intersections of performance process in dance and um, environmental philosophy and feminist philosophy. But I never expected to actually ground it in our national park system. So I started learning more about the establishment of parks, which also, as I've mentioned before, is a very complex history, including um, the ways in which those landscapes were lived in before the United States occupied them and called them public lands. I mean, there are very difficult histories that are part of even our our amazing national parks. Um, But one of the things that I love about the national parks is is that I feel like there's a value system um, that encompasses beauty. So there's an established way of understanding and making, trying to make accessible the beauty of the environment for all people. I mean, I think at, at its highest ideal, it's, it's trying to make um, these landscapes accessible for people. Now, there are also issues of accessibility in various ways, but by preserving them as public, you know, in the definition of public, then they belong to the people as a whole. And they also concern the people as a whole. So it relates a little bit back to that sense of responsibility. that we were talking about in the last segment that we all have responsibility for caring for them. So as part of my work, I was really looking at um, relationships and how Dance can teach me more about how to be human and how to be human in relation to living environments that contain um, many, many different species, not assuming that humans are the dominant species, but but really respecting that we all have a place. So in my experiments early on and in my, my performance research early on in national parks, I was looking at what can this landscape teach me? And what can the dialogue between my movement and this landscape teach me? So I was, I was working with a very specific dance, so there was very specific choreography, and I performed it for days and days and days in each national park that I visited, and I, I visited five very different sites. And so I, I learned a lot of philosophical lessons and also physical lessons in each of those different landscapes but it revealed to me more about what I think is possible for the United States and for um, how we hold ourselves to responsibility and also to beauty, answering to beauty. Um, and I, I just at the time thought, oh my gosh, if if everybody could come to national parks, we wouldn't need um, <laughs> these weapons. We wouldn't need uh, to feel that we have to be more offensive or defensive than at peace. You know, there seemed like to me there's something about these landscapes that represent the best of what we can be as a nation. So, for example, in in, in one place, I'm very afraid of heights, just as a person, and mm-hmm. um, in Acadia National Park, I I was dancing on this very high cliff over the ocean, and I I was so scared the entire time. <laughs> And I remember looking down and seeing this tiny, tiny little red spider that had no problem um, scampering over the rocks, no problem being upside down all around and and no fear. And at one point in the dance, I I kneel. And so it just like the philosophical lesson that came out of that for me was right to remember not to be afraid of heights, (laughs) metaphorical or physical, but to be willing to bow down, to be willing to kneel and receive um, and in another park I was actually in Shiloh in Tennessee and I was I was doing the same dance in this area that's known as Bloody Pond and all of the sudden I could feel the choreography shifting as I was performing it and it uh, my wrist started to curl a different way and I was I, I started feeling like my movement became very horse-like and I wasn't sure what that was about but then after the performance, after I'd been, been doing that for several hours, I went over and read the placard that was beside that land, and it said that that actually was the area where the bodies of deceased horses were gathered and burned. So there was a there's a way that dance, I think, can make accessible to us um, deeper understanding than we even realize. And then at Joshua Tree, I was... I was dancing in this dry riverbed and I felt so calm and I realized like, right, of course this riverbed half of the year holds rushing water. So surely it can hold me and all of the turmoil or or the rushing that's going on inside my being. And it really made me think, okay, this is what I want to be in the world also, that I want to be like this for other people, I want to be like a riverbed that can embrace them and contain them no matter what they're going through. So it had a probably more profound impact on me than than the ever I had on the sites, but I think that that's that's part of what we carry into the world is is the ways in which our experiences have shaped us.
0: Hi, I'm Melody Moody-Thortis, and you're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast. You can also hear the show on MPV Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. To hear all our conversations with creative Mississippians, be sure to subscribe to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast on your favorite podcasting app.